Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 27th. In today's news, the coronavirus spreads like wildfire into some of our nation's last untouched areas. Rioting shakes Philadelphia overnight after police kill a black man. And two new studies show there's water on the moon. But first, the big idea. With only Republicans supporting her confirmation, Amy Coney Barrett became the first Supreme Court justice since Edwin Stanton during Reconstruction in 1869 to be confirmed without any bipartisan support. Advanced on a 52-48 to vote and quickly sworn in Monday night at the White House, the 48-year-old becomes the 115th justice and the fifth woman in the court's 231-year history. One week from Election Day, more than 60 million Americans have already cast their ballots for president, and the incumbent trails in the polls. Republicans privately acknowledge that if the election was today, they're more likely than not to lose control of the Senate. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, voted to confirm now Justice Brett Kavanaugh in 2018 and to put Barrett on the circuit court in 2017. But he decried Senate Republicans for further politicizing the high court and said they will rue the day that they did so. Republican presidents have now appointed 15 of the most recent 19 justices, including six of the current nine. That's all the more remarkable when you consider that the Republican candidate for president has only won the national popular vote once since 1988. That was George W. Bush's re-election in 2004. And Republican senators have only represented a majority of the American population for one two-year stretch in the last three decades. Republicans celebrated what they acknowledged was a raw display of pure political power. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, said on the floor, the reason we were able to do what we did in 2016, 2018, and 2020 is because we had the majority. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer countered, the American people will never forget this blatant act of bad faith. In an outdoor ceremony at the White House an hour after that exchange, Justice Clarence Thomas administered the constitutional oath to Barrett, with Trump and several Republican senators looking on. Barrett, who faced repeated questions at her confirmation hearings about Trump's preferred outcome for court rulings, delivered brief remarks on judicial independence, an unusual move for a new justice. Chief Justice John Roberts didn't want to go to the White House, so he will administer the judicial oath in a private ceremony at the court this afternoon. Barrett came under pressure from Democratic senators to recuse herself from any election-related challenges involving the president, but Barrett declined to do so. The court resumes oral arguments next Monday, and two of its biggest cases of the term are scheduled for next week, including the challenge to the Affordable Care Act. While the rest of the country is still counting votes, next Wednesday on November 4th, Sungmin Kim reports that the Supremes will take up a legal fight from Philadelphia, where city officials ended a contract with Catholic Social Services to provide foster care services because the agency said it would not accept applications from married same-sex couples. A lower court has agreed that the city can enforce its anti-discrimination policy, which protects sexual orientation. Barrett is likely to support overturning that. Barrett will meet with her new eight colleagues in a private conference on Friday to review cases that could still be added to the docket for this term. There are several emergency requests pending before the court, two involving election procedures in the battleground states of North Carolina and Pennsylvania, as well as an emergency request from Trump to get the court to temporarily stop a subpoena from the Manhattan District Attorney seeking the president's private financial records as part of a fraud investigation. Last night, 
the Supreme Court rejected a request to extend Wisconsin's deadline for counting mail-in ballots. The vote was 5-3, to three, with the Republican-nominated conservatives in the majority and the Democratic-nominated liberals in dissent. These pandemic-related election cases have come to dominate the agenda. The court's conservatives say they should defer to state officials on election decisions. The liberal justices say there's a need for dramatic action by the courts to ensure the franchise for endangered voters in this unprecedented time. Consider this. Five red states have refused to make any accommodations at all as a result of COVID. Cases are rising again in Texas, but most voters fearful of infection are not allowed to cast ballots by mail. For the limited number who qualify with a separate excuse, Republican Governor Greg Abbott has restricted drop-off locations to one per county. And when the Democratic stronghold of Harris County, which is where Houston is, took steps to make voting easier, GOP leaders sued local officials. Elise Vebeck and Arellis Hernandez report that almost all of the roughly 30 million registered voters who live in Texas, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee have no choice but to go cast their ballots in person next week. But folks in places like Harris County, which includes Houston, are turning out in droves despite the barriers erected by Abbott and his compatriots. Nearly 7.4 million Texans have already cast their ballot exceeding the total 2016 early vote by nearly 3 million. Despite that turnout surge, voting rights advocates fear that rules in these states limit access to the ballot box for less privileged groups, including younger voters, people of color, and this year, people with medical conditions that leave them more vulnerable to COVID. In Michigan, the newest flashpoint in the voting wars is whether to allow guns at polling places. Untold millions of Americans will be able to show up at their voting location openly carrying firearms, something that has unnerved law enforcement officials and experts nationwide at a time of pitched anxiety over whether clashes or violence could break out before, on, or after Election Day. Six states, plus D.C., ban firearms at polling locations entirely. Another four ban concealed weapons at these spots. Others, though, have no special rules, though guns might be outlawed at some polling locations by virtue of them being at churches or schools. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat, invoked the possibility of voter intimidation when she announced that she is banning openly carried firearms at any polling place as well as within 100 feet of any entrance to a polling place. Her move has prompted a lawsuit from three pro-gun rights groups who argue that her directive was, quote, conjured without any legal basis under Michigan law. Benson's directive also prompted pushback from right-wing law enforcement officials in Michigan, including Michael Murphy, the sheriff of Livingston County, who said in a video statement on Facebook that he will not enforce the directive. Appeals in this case could wind up before Barrett and the other eight justices. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, hospitals in nearly every region of the country are reporting a flood of new COVID patients. More than 62,000 new infections were reported nationwide on Monday, bringing our total since February to at least 8.7 million. More than 42,000 people are in the hospital this morning with COVID, a figure that's steadily climbing toward the midsummer peak caused by massive outbreaks in the Sun Belt. In places hit the hardest, this continues nudging hospitals toward the nightmare scenario of rationing care, letting old folks die to save the young. 41 states and Puerto Rico have more hospitalized COVID patients today than at the end of September. And 22 of those states have seen increases in excess of 50%. Rural America is particularly vulnerable. 
in the entire state of North Dakota. Only 25 intensive care beds remain staffed and available in the 11 hospitals that have ICUs. Even hospital officials in places not yet in full-blown crisis are concerned about these national trends, worried about a potential drain of experienced nurses who may be lured to other parts of the country that are combating outbreaks. Few places would seem better able to ride out an infectious disease pandemic than Petroleum County in Montana, where 500 people are spread out over 1,700 square miles, much of it public lands and cattle ranches. For most of the year, it did just that. Then came October. Karen Brouillard reports that there's now an outbreak in Petroleum County. Three residents have just tested positive, knocking the county off the shrinking list of places with zero cases and forcing the lone school to close and proving, as the local sheriff put it, that eventually we were going to get it and that the virus ain't gone yet. This is a lesson people in many other wide-open places have been learning the hard way as the coronavirus surges anew. The most sparsely populated parts of America, unfortunately, also have the worst access to health care. Seven Republican lawmakers in the Arkansas state capitol tested positive yesterday for the virus. Half the inmates in South Dakota's prison system have tested positive. Of 3,100 inmates in South Dakota, 1,600 are stricken. At least 20 people who attended a South Carolina shag dancing event in September in Myrtle Beach that was approved by state authorities and held at a beach club have now contracted the virus and another five have died. Over the past week, our nation has suffered a 20% increase in new cases, a 13% rise in hospitalizations, and an 11% rise in daily deaths, according to Johns Hopkins University. New case numbers are particularly bad in Wisconsin, Iowa, my home state of Minnesota, and parts of Michigan, all of which could play a decisive role in next week's presidential contest. Nonetheless, Donald Trump argued during three rallies in Pennsylvania yesterday, where thousands gathered without social distancing or consistent mask wearing, that the viral danger has been exaggerated by the media and that it's going to go away on its own right after the election. This can only be described as trying to deceive the American people. In a stark contrast to Trump's PAC schedule, Biden, who tested negative again for the virus yesterday, traveled for a single unannounced campaign stop in Chester, which is a suburb of Philly in Pennsylvania, where he briefly addressed reporters. Today, Biden goes to Georgia. He plans visits to Iowa, Florida, Wisconsin, and Michigan later this week. While Trump was in the Keystone State, Mike Pence flew to Minnesota for a closely packed event. Minnesota, according to the White House Coronavirus Task Force that he chairs, is categorized as in the, quote, red zone for cases, their highest level. Nonetheless, many in the audience at Pence's event did not wear masks, nor were they directed to. Sadly, America's not alone here. Our neighbors to the north in Canada are seeing their case count rise as well. Authorities there are pointing to Thanksgiving gatherings as a cause. Canadian Thanksgiving, celebrated two weeks ago on the second Monday of October, provides a cautionary tale for us. Officials advised Canadians to curtail plans, but many ignored that advice, and now folks are getting sick and dying because of it. Number two. The Philadelphia Police Department says two officers fatally shot 27-year-old Walter Wallace Jr. several times yesterday afternoon after he refused to drop a knife as his mother followed closely behind trying to restrain him. But Wallace's family and local activists point to cell phone video of the shooting, asking why officers didn't use less lethal weapons to try to subdue him. His father, Walter Sr., said they could have used a taser and noted that his son was on medication because of mental illness. 
In the hours after the shooting, 300 protesters massed in the streets, facing down officers in riot gear who pushed them back with shields and batons. As the night wore on, multiple businesses were looted. A police vehicle was set ablaze, and at least a dozen officers were injured, including one who was hospitalized with a broken leg after being struck by a truck, according to WTXF television. Philadelphia officials have called for a full investigation of the shooting, and they're asking the public to remain patient as investigators determine whether the officers violated any policies or laws. Number three. Let me end with a glimmer of good news. There is water. Water on the moon's surface. And ice may be widespread in its many shadows. This is according to a pair of studies published yesterday in the journal Nature Astronomy. The research confirms longstanding theories about the existence of lunar water that could someday enable astronauts to live there for extended periods. One scientific team found the telltale sign of water molecules, perhaps bound up in glass, in a sunlit region. Another group estimated that the widespread prevalence of tiny shadowed pockmarks on the lunar landscape, possible shelter for water ice over an area of 15,000 square miles. Moon water has been seen as a potential resource by NASA, which created a program in 2019 called Artemis to send American astronauts back to the moon this decade. Launching water to space costs thousands of dollars per gallon. Future explorers may be able to use lunar water not only to quench their own thirst, but to refuel their rockets. Ben Guarino and Joel Achenbach report that this new discovery comes from remote observations of the moon's surface by an infrared telescope aboard SOFIA, NASA's name for a modified Boeing 747 that flies high in Earth's atmosphere and scans the moon's surface. The instruments aboard the observatory detected subtleties in the moonlight at a wavelength of 6 microns, which the researchers believe is an unambiguous signal of water. They say that only molecular water can create a 6-micron band. Excited about the findings, NASA has announced that it has hired a private company to deploy a rover, which will be named Viper, to go to the moon's south pole in 2023. It will drill for water a meter below the surface. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 27th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.